0: Kia ora, I'm Anne O'Brien, director of the Auckland Writers Festival, and you're listening to the session podcast, The Water Will Come, from our 2018 program. By century's end, our landscape will be transformed, and hundreds of millions of people will retreat inland as coasts are inundated. In the water will come. Rising Seas, Sinking Cities, and the Remaking of the Civilized World. Acclaimed journalist and Rolling Stone, mildly gonzo contributor Jeff Goodell, travels to 12 countries and reports from the front lines of global warming. The book follows a previous award-winning work on cooling the planet and big coal, and cements his place as one of the world's leading climate change journalists. He discusses the future and its watery crisis, with Dan Salmon, in a session supported by Platinum patrons Julian Brown and David McLean. We hope you enjoy it.
1: Hello, kia ora. I'd like to welcome you all to The Water Will Come, an hour with Jeff Goodell. I'm Dan Salmon, and before we start, I'd like to thank Platinum patrons Julian Brown and David McLean for their support. Uh, Their support gives us the opportunity to talk with Geoff about the future, our watery crisis, and his latest book, The Water Will Come. If you could all check your phones are on silent, please. Uh, The festival does encourage you to tweet in social media, but please do it in a way that it doesn't bother your neighbors. We're going to run the session as a conversation between us, and there will be time for Q&As at the end. We'll have microphones we'll get you to line up in front of. We are looking for questions rather than speeches, particularly on this topic. Um, So there may be some sort of punishment if questions go on for too long. (laughs) Now, Jeff is a uh, contributing editor at Rolling Stone magazine a frequent contributor to New York Times Magazine and Yale University's Environment 360. Known as a commentator on energy and climate issues, he's published books on Silicon Valley, coal and geoengineering. His most recent book, the one we're here to talk about today, The Water Will Come, is subtitled Rising Seas, Sinking Cities, and the Remaking of a Civilized World. The book takes us to the front line of sea level rise in places like Greenland, Venice, New York, Maduro and the Marshall Islands, Miami, Holland, Alaska, and Lagos. And for an island nation like ours, I think it's an absolute must read. The reason I think that is because in preparing for this talk, I did a bit of research in the impending impact of sea level rise on New Zealand. So I want to chuck some local figures out there before we talk. NIWA did a risk census in 2015, which found nearly 70,000 low-lying buildings worth more than $19 billion were at risk nationwide, affecting over 130,000 people, 2,000 kilometers of road, and five airports. So in a city that's arguing about how we build some sort of train to the airport, we perhaps should be thinking about how long the airport's gonna be there. (laughs) (laughs) And so half those figures, affect our cities. The rest of them are small towns and isolated areas, some of which, as Jeff discusses in his book, we may end up having to just lock the doors and leave. So I want to say a big welcome to Jeff. Thank you, I'm very happy to be here. Thank you all for coming. And say, that. well, that's the bad news. What's the good news? (laughs) (laughs)
2: Well, the good news is we'll get to uh, you know, uh, rebuild our coastlines in in new and interesting ways. I mean, I think, I mean, obviously this is not a, um, uh, sea level rise is not a kind of happy story that, you know, um, we're all very, you know, overjoyed about. Um, But I do think it's going to kick off um, a a real wave of creativity and thinking about how we live with water and how we live on our coastlines. And, um, you know, there's going to be a lot of, uh, as one friend of mine called it, um, Urban Renewal by Mother Nature. Um, uh, but there's also going to be a lot of new interesting things and new creativity. I know a lot of uh, architects, urban planners and things who are thinking, you know, differently about, about how we live. And, you know, no one says that the way we live now is like optimized and perfect, right? So I think that there will be a lot of uh, inspiring thinking going on as a result
1: of this. Now, the the title of your book, which is the place we're starting from, you know, what caught my eye immediately was the tense, the water will come, so it's coming.
2: Yeah, that was really deliberate. Um, My publisher came up with the title and I immediately liked it um, for the biblical kind of quality of it, but also the the, the idea that the water will come. It's not the water will come unless we all put solar panels on our houses or something like that, you know. one of the really important facts to get about this subject is that um, no matter what we do with carbon emissions, no matter how much uh, solar panels we put on our houses, no matter how uh, cool of stuff Elon Musk you know, designs, and how many electric cars and whatever, we still have a significant amount of sea level rise built into the system. Um, it doesn't mean that cutting emissions are not you know, worth doing, but it means that um, we're going to have to deal with this anyway. And um, I think that there's a lot of people who still have the notion that, you know, uh, we, meaning humanity, civilization, will get our act together and start to cut emissions. I mean, that's the sort of fantasy that's been going on for 35 years, and I've sort of grown out of that. But, um, uh, you know, there is this notion that we can stop this, and we can't. And this is. Uh, a really central idea that the, the title I think communicates.
1: One one thing I want to talk about is the scene in the book where you go to Alaska with pres- then President Obama, and there's a there's a wonderful YouTube documentary by Rolling Stone that that you can watch this in. And the question you ask Obama about sea level rise and climate change is what's your oh shit moment? And so I wanted to ask you what your oh shit moment was. Well, I think that for me, uh, my oh shit moment
2: was uh, in West Virginia. Um, I grew up in Silicon Valley and I worked at Apple Computer when Steve Jobs was still running around barefoot. Um, Became a journalist, you know, um, uh, wrote about cops and innovation and, and Of A whole variety of things, but I did, I I always, sort of, um, I wrote a lot about Silicon Valley and the the birth of the internet and all the kind of wonderful things that high technology was bringing to our lives. But I never, like, thought about where the electrons come from that power all of this, um, ever in my life. I just thought, like most people, electricity kind of comes from a golden bowl in the sky and it just sort of it gets, gets distributed to our outlets somehow. Um, and then in 2001, it, when um, George W. Bush was, just after he was elected, the New York Times called me and said, um, we want you to go to West Virginia and write about the comeback of the coal industry. And I was like, a little thought bubble went off in my head. I was like, what coal industry? We don't burn coal in America. That's a Charles Dickens thing. You know, I had no idea that half, at that time, half electricity in America came from coal. So I went. And um, of course, I told the Times that was a brilliant idea and uh, why didn't I think of that? But um, I went and I ended up writing a a cover story for the Times Magazine about it, but my oh shit moment was I climbed up um, a hill uh, when I first got to Charleston and I looked down into a mountaintop removal mine, a big pit mine, and it was sort of like looking down into the world of the orcs uh, for me. And I realized that all these like happy clean electrons that I had been sort of celebrating in my life, came from burning this stuff. And at that moment, I really realized the consequences of, of all of this. And, and it, it, it's not too much to say that it changed my life. I mean, I basically, from that moment on, haven't written about anything else but sort of energy, and especially the climate, because um, as a journalist and as a human being, I think it's the great story of our time. I think that how we're going to deal with this both on the you know uh, energy side of how we're going to fuel and you know uh, our lives how we're going to replace fossil fuels and how we're going to deal with things like sea level rise and climate change is is the big story
1: and um so that was my moment one one thing that I find really interesting has got this, this massive idea of climate change that it's really hard to stick a pin in it and what you've done with this book is stick the pin in sea level rise. Was that an intentional way to to encapsulate the whole conversation into something we could all see and touch?
2: Um, No, I mean it kind of looks that way now but it it came more out of, um, I mean this book was born with Hurricane Sandy um, in New York uh, after Hurricane Sandy hit New York, um, I went into the city and, um, you know, I was thinking about how to write about it, and I talked to this climate scientist who said, one way to think about what's happened in lower Manhattan, where we had about nine feet of water coming into the city, is as a kind of dress rehearsal for sea level rise. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, well, imagine that water comes in and, and never goes, or doesn't go out. And that's what sea level rise will look like, because the projections for 2100 are around, you know, the high end is about nine feet of of sea level rise. So I thought, oh, that's an interesting idea, and um, but then he said, you want to really blow your mind, you know, go have that same thought experiment in Miami, and I did, and I I realized that Miami, I I then wrote a story about Miami called, with a very subtle title called Goodbye Miami, um, (laughs) which Believe me, I, there's a big fan club for me at the Real Estate Association in uh, I always I tell my kids, they know, the, I said, if there's ever a kind of Karen Silkwood moment in my life where, like, my car ends up in a ditch with, like, it's like, go talk to the Miami realtors. They're, they'll, they'll be the ones. But, you know, the thing that happened to me is that I'd known about sea level rise. I've written about climate change for a long time, but I always thought of it as this sort of, long, slow thing that it's gonna happen, you know, decades in the future, and like the other more urgent things to think about. And with Sandy and thinking about Miami, I came to understand that no, this is not a sort of far off future thing, that sea level rise has happened, you know, in the past when you look at geologic history, it happens in pulses, not in, and so I realized that it was like, a, a real immediate issue, and that places like Miami, that was my sort of um, lab for the very beginning for thinking about this, were completely not prepared. And nobody was thinking about this. And I was like, it's like, for me as a, like, as a journalist, it was more like I just tripped into a like big story. Um, and that's how kind of I thought about it. Like no one has really
1: articulated what's going on here. And so that's how the book was born. And Miami really, frames the book from your, with, with your projected, projected fictionalizations of, of what it could be like. And at the beginning of the book, it reads like science fiction. And when you rework it at the end of the book in simpler plain language, it feels like it's just around the corner. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I start the book with a fictional account of a hurricane. Um, that is, was sort of my ode to um, Silent Spring, which starts with the fictional account of uh, you know the silence of, without, of, of a spring morning without birds and I was a little nervous as a journalist because i i this book is obviously a work of journalism and n- not um, fictional in any way, and so I was a little um, apprehensive about about doing that, but I think that um, it's a way of kind of communicating
1: the sort of stakes, and it, uh, it, I don't know, I think it kind of works. On on your trip through the different countries you go to, it feels like you're having a different emotional reaction to what's happening in different places, and, and you know, the sense I got of your trip to Venice was, was a sadness, would that be right?
2: Yeah, I mean, Venice was, um, interesting because I mean everybody knows that Venice is sinking and so the the, the idea and by the way the thinking has stopped in Venice but everyone uh, has this idea, I mean most people have this idea in their mind that Venice is in trouble and and all that um, but my re- immediate reaction to Venice was you know and i had been there before but you know you see things new when you look at things and you're visiting or thinking about them in a different context and my first thought when I got to Venice was Oh my God, this city is so beautiful. It's so great having a city in the water. You know, why, don't, why didn't we build all the cities this way? You know, why did we bother with streets? Why didn't we put all the cities in the water like this? And, and so on one hand, it was like this great possibility, right? I mean, here is a great water city and it's beautiful and everyone loves it and I loved it. And, um, and, and it was a kind of, um, it was really kind of exciting. And, and then I was jet lagged, um, and I was sitting in Piazza San Marco having a, a cappuccino. And the water just starts running into Piazza San Marco, just like the high tide, it's just a normal high tide, and it just starts flooding. And you know before I finish my cappuccino practically, I'm like ankle deep in water. And I'm like, what is going on? And of course I knew what was going on, but to see it so dramatically, represented that way, um, but Venice is, you know, tragic because um, it, it, it's, it's, it's going to be gone and it's a great jewel of a city and, um, you know, there's a big attempt now to build a barrier on the lagoon, which we can talk more in more detail about, which isn't going to work, um, even though they spent six billion dollars on it. Um, they call it the Ferrari on the seafloor because it's a very <coughs> fancy barrier that is all way too technologically sophisticated. Um, uh, but it's you know one of the things that I had to grapple with. You mentioned the sort of emotional reactions in thinking about this is this question of loss. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's an economic. It's about economics. It's about real estate. It's about lots of things. But it's also just about loss. About mm-hmm you know, places you love, whether it's because your grandfather built the house that is going to be washed away and you know it's going to be washed away, or it's because the beach where, you know, you made out with your first boyfriend or girlfriend or 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 whatever. I mean, there's just a lot of personal connections and historic buildings,
1: you know. Uh, and and just, so Venice had that kind of emotional feeling mm. for me. It feels like a polar bear moment, you know, we, we build stories of climate change around magnificent natural environment stories and the sea level rise you know the moment that caught for me with venice is here is this wonderful human achievement that we've celebrated for 600 years you know and artworks that we study at school and right. And some of them you can't just chuck in different galleries because they are the buildings. Right.
2: And I had a very interesting conversation with the sort of head engineer for the city of, of Venice, who, who said that in you know previous centuries this wouldn't have been a problem because they just built on top of things and they just you know if you when they do any kind of construction in Venice you know it's like they run into just layers and layers of foundations for old buildings. And he said in the past we would have just knocked this stuff down and built it higher. But now, because we value this stuff in a different way, no one's gonna be knocking down that, that idea of we're gonna just knock this stuff down and build it higher, which is kind of what they think in Miami is gonna be the solution, uh, that doesn't, is not culturally acceptable for us anymore, even though they would have happily done that in the 15th century.
1: I wanna go backwards a little bit because we're talking about the impact on cities, but we haven't defined what the amount of sea level rises and there are several conversations in the book about what that might be. Can you tell us about what you think, having gone through this process we're facing and how quickly?
2: Yes, um, so the, the question of how much half fast is the big question, of course, right? And so, and so there's a range of um, scenarios and risks for it, but you know, the, the sort of gold standard for, um, all climate-related science is this thing called the IPCC, which is the, you know, uh, uh, sort of UN of climate science. And they're notoriously conservative and out of date, sadly, and so they estimate three feet of sea level rise by the end of the century, and for complicated, well, not that complicated of reasons, they choose, a lot of these numbers are based around 2100, uh, which is like a little bit too far in the future to really be relevant to our lives, but it's the benchmark that is used by scientists um, and every basically every climate scientist I know thinks the IPCC numbers are too low and out of date. And the U.S. government, NOAA, um, has a high end of 8 feet, um, and some are pushing it to 9 feet now. Um, so that's the sort of, you know, the range for the sort of best science right now is 3 to 9 feet, and the numbers keep getting higher. Um, and the numbers keep getting higher because uh for two reasons one is that it's becoming obvious that we're not cutting emissions and lowering uh co2 uh, levels at all to take some of the edge off of this and also because they're understanding more about ice dynamics uh, especially what's happening in west antarctica which is the sort of biggest risk area right now um so these numbers keep growing but the the, the harder question is like what does it mean in the near future right what does it mean in the next decade or two three decades and, you know, that's, that's a diff- more difficult area, but, you know, the basic science is saying two feet maybe by 2040, which is pretty close. That's 20 years. Two feet of sea level rise is a huge, huge amount. Um, but we know in the past that, you know, there's very good geologic evidence just in the near past, 14,000 years ago, which in, you know, Earth's history is yesterday, uh, there were moments when the sea levels rose 13 feet in a century. Um, and so scientists really don't know what the upper boundary for how fast this can happen. It's not going to be like a Hollywood movie thing, like, oh my God, you know, close the doors, the water's coming in, you know, it's not like that. But um,
1: the, the, the changes could happen much, much faster um, than we think. I want to put that in a local context, because I was talking to a builder down in Dunedin in the South Island who was putting, um, foundations in, in in South Dunedin, which is a very low-lying suburb, and they popped in a spectrometer to try and find solid ground, and this stainless steel thing just slowly sank down. So they dug a hole, and there was the sea 30 centimetres under where they were building, and they sat there watching it as the tide went R- in and out. So I did a bit of reading about Dunedin before I came in. and. Uh, there are 3,000 houses down there less than 50 centimetres above sea level and there's an argument at the moment between people connected to the Dunedin Council about whether the entire suburb will be underwater by 2034 or 2065. No, neither of those seem like good news to me yeah. and it feels like we should be stopping building. Yeah that would be a good idea. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> But there, there are sure. examples like that in your book aren't there where that construction's just Continuing,
2: yeah. I mean, uh, I can't think of very many places where they have uh, really done any kind of serious restriction of building. Uh, partly because, uh, you know, especially a lot of the book is focused on Florida, so on the the economic and real estate part of it. And you know, that's the way that that's the economic engine for for not just Florida, many places, but especially Florida. Um, and so, restricting building means slowing down development, and slowing down development means, you know, declining property re- tax revenues and things like that. So there's real momentum uh, and, you know, loathe to do anything like that. But I, what I r- really want to underscore, even with about the community that you're talking about, is is the real risk, there's a, the risk, of course, of inundation, you know, that's a real thing, but it's not like, you know, it's not gonna be a problem until there's sort of sharks swimming through the, the lobby here, right? It's it's. Um, not only the coastal erosion just if even a few inches changes coastal erosion balance, but also change the, the really important thing is the perception of risk and the perception of okay so if you know if we know that that seas are going to rise and we do know this but once it becomes kind of built into how we think about coastal living it changes the economic value of these places. So when I look at Miami Beach, for example, now I see a landscape of stranded, ri- uh, stranded assets, right? I mean, it's like these things are going to be worth less very soon. And you know, I just was talking at an insurance company convention a couple of days ago, and this idea of like misplaced risk, and the assets are not priced to reflect the fact that, you know, in 20 years there's a very, very good chance that they're going to be worth a whole lot less than they are today. So once that starts to, people start thinking that way, then the question comes up, which is the question that I get all of the time. It's like, Jeff, should I sell my house? You know, that's always the question. And of course, that question is impossible to answer in any simple way, because it's about your tolerance for risk and every, different places are different kinds of risk and what your values are, you know, some people, you know, it doesn't matter if they lose half the value of their house in 10 or 15 years because they enjoy living on the coast and that's fine. Um, but, but this awareness of, of uh, the economic consequences of this I think are a really big deal.
1: Well, that is, a, that is a, another question I have is, is who pays. You know, it's one thing to have a house slowly losing value, but if a big weather event comes and takes out a storm and that's connected to rising sea levels and climate change, who pays? And if the council have ticked off the house build in full awareness of rising sea levels, do the councils pay? And then our councils—they have three thousand houses, thirty centimeters above sea level. Do they all go bankrupt? And then who, you know, who bails? Where does it all end? Because it yeah. won't be the insurance companies, right?
2: Right, <laughs> right. So I mean, I don't know how kind of this works uh, in New Zealand, but in the U.S., you, know, you have you know the Federal Emergency Management that you know presumably takes care of. Uh, things in when there's a disaster, right? There's a, a rebuilding, but um, and it's interesting because in, I travel around um, the world, but especially in the U.S., which I you know know best, of course. Is I I go to places that are very politically conservative, who want you know government to have nothing to do with their lives, you know, or just like total libertarians or conservatives. But they still have this notion that when the water comes, whether it's from a storm or from just you know, f- you know, increased sunny day kind of flooding, that the government will take care of them, that, that you know, they government won't possibly let you know, this house be worth nothing. You know, they, that can't happen, because you know, th- the whole town would be worth nothing, and then that they, uh, you know, somebody has to take care of us, and it'll be the government. Well, it's not going to be because there's not going to be enough money for this. This is not like one storm in one place. This is going to happen, you know, in coastal communities all at once, simultaneously. So uh, there's going to be a lot of loss and a lot of uh, economic loss. um, And there's going to be a lot of, you know, suffering. And, um, you know, people will begin to retreat to leave. Um, some people won't because they won't be able to for a variety of reasons
1: um, and it's a very kind of uh, disturbing scenario. One, one of the inevitabilities about South Dunedin eventually relocating is that the sea's coming up through the ground, Right. so but there are places where geology means you can try to keep the sea out. Can you talk us through some of the examples that you talk about in the book? Yeah, I mean, the classic case is, again, Miami in
2: South Florida. I mean, um, South Florida is basically built on Swiss cheese. Um, It's a a kind of porous limestone. The, The entire South Florida plateau is a limestone plateau. And it's very flat, so, so even modest amounts of rising water you know, spread a long way. Uh, and because it's the, the ground is is porous, uh, you can't really build seawalls. Because so, if you build a seawall, the water will just go underneath it and come up the other side. Uh, and that's a huge problem. I mean, um, you know, a place like New York is a different scenario altogether. It has a, a kind of, uh, granite substructure, um, you can build seawalls, um, it has high ground that you can retreat to. Um, there's a whole different kind of calculation, and I'm not like endorsing seawalls because n- there's lots of problems with them, but in many cases there's an inevitability to, to building seawalls. But some places just it's just not possible. Um, Venice is another example because of the structure of the lagoon and everything, you can't really build seawalls there, and so they're trying to build A big barrier on the edge of the entire lagoon uh, to keep the sea out um, uh, creating essentially eventually they will have to create essentially a big lake you know so Venice will be on a big lake eventually not connected to the sea the way it is now Um, but the responses to how we're gonna deal with this is going to vary hugely on local geology and local topography so there's no like you can't just hire a Dutch engineer and send them around the world and say fix it all, you know, because it's different
1: everywhere. <laughs> the, the book does talk about there being Dutch engineers all around the world. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so that's not totally out of the blue. Yes, This is a very good business for them. They're, this, is, <laughs> this is boom time for them. Dutch's latest, Holland's latest exporters, hydro engineers. Mm-hmm. But I mean, are there, are there systems that are working? You know, it, it felt like in Venice too much of the... Expenditure was disappearing into people's pockets. Uh, the the floating systems in different places. You seem skeptical about all of them, really.
2: Well, I think there are better and worse, um, you know, ideas about how to deal with this. Um, but you know, New York is in in the aftermath of Hurricane Sandy. Did this thing called Rebuild by Design, where they basically had a contest. Um, for uh, architects and urban planners to design these innovative structures for, for coastal protection. And they came up with some some kind of really interesting ideas. Um, you know, the, the, the sort of big uh, movement now is away from walls and, and towards sort of more natural solutions, um, recognizing the inevitability of retreat. I mean, that's the hard part that nobody really wants to talk about is, that you know all these coastal structures uh, defense structures are have a kind of limited time, and um, the amount of money that it costs and the the ecological damages that walls and things cause and you know the hardest thing with walls, even in places where they can be built, is the sort of equity issues and social justice issues because inevitably there's a wall here and that wall ends and someone's behind the wall and then the other person is not. And why, why do you get a wall, you know, designed by a fancy Danish architect and I don't, right? And who decides that? And there's a lot of um, social justice issues that Th- are coming out in New York right now as they, as they think about this. Um, but ultimately, I'm skeptical about them all because there, some of them are really are better. In, in you know, in Miami, they've done some, uh, they've improved drainage and they've put in some pumps, and all those things are fine, because they buy time and they're legitimate and they're going to happen. But ultimately, the solution to this is going to be um, a retreat, a moving away from places. And and I think a lot of these coastal defenses, some of them are good, but they're they're also colossal, there's going to be colossal amounts of kind of money wasted on stuff that's not going to work or not going to work for very long and and Venice is a a great example of that.
1: It feels like there's there's not just an economy of geology but there's an economy of scale. Uh, When I had first started reading the book I was driving through a small town, Natia, down down the coast about an hour and it's all less than half a meter above sea level and, you know, it's a town of 1,300 people quite a long way from any big city. That's not going to be rebuilt, right? No one's going to invest in saving Nātiʻa unless it's people from Parnell wanting to get to their batches down in Coromandel and needing the road lifted up. You know, there are going to be whole towns that walk away, aren't there? Yeah. Yes, there are. I mean,
2: you know, another big problem for places like that that, um, and it also is true in cities too. But you know, is is the coastal infrastructure, the roads? You know, uh, the the erosion of roads, the maintenance of roads, going to get very uh, expensive, more increasingly expensive. At a certain point, it's already happening in places in the U.S. where they're just saying, "We're not going to fix this road anymore," uh, and so you lose access to places, to towns uh, in the U.S. And I write about this in my book. There was a very famous case where in Florida where there was a road that um, they were spending, I think, I don't know, 12 $12 million dollars a year to uh, repair, and the county basically said, look, we can't keep doing this because we don't have this much money. If we keep fixing this road, we don't have any money to spend fixing the rest of the roads, and that's our job is to keep all the roads fixed. And so they said, we're not not doing this. And the residents, there was about 70 or 60 houses, Uh, that had access, they needed this road for access, they sued the government for uh, takings, for, you know, like the constitutional taking of our property. And it was a huge fight um, because they argued that their houses were worth nothing without the road and the road had been built and maintained over years. So there was a uh, implicit agreement that they would continue to do that. And the county said no. Sorry, we're not going to do that. And uh, they had a big court fight, and they kind of worked it out for the moment in an arbitration. But um, eventually, that road is going to either going to go away, or the the residents themselves will have to pay for it, which I think is going to happen increasingly. And you know, airports are another great example of. Um, uh, public infrastructure risk that nobody is really, who's gonna pay for it and who's gonna fix it, and they're incredibly important to economics of a, a region, having a, a good airport. And many airports are built in very low-lying places. You can elevate runways a little bit, but there's the whole I- issue of the roads and access to the airports. Um, uh, and uh, I think that that is going to, again, drive a lot of, um, uh, it puts a lot of investment at risk because if you have to shut the airport down or move the airport, not only is it expensive but it changes the whole economic dynamics of a place.
1: We've talked about building walls to try and keep the water up, um, in Miami you talk about the roads being, that there's, a, there's a man with a plan of lifting everything in a, in a Miami suburb by two feet, is that realistic? I had a great great conversation, so when I I went to Miami
2: and I I started reporting this book, they had this real estate developer who was the head of the Blue Ribbon panel uh, for Sea Level Rise, and so I met with him, and I said, so, you know, know, we we sat in his office, and very sleek office, and uh, I said, you know, I laid out what I was doing with the book, and I said, well, how do you think about this? And he just said, oh, we're going to raise the city two feet. And I'm like, really? You're gonna raise all of Miami Beach two feet? And he said, yep. And I said, do you have any engineering studies or anything about this? He goes, no, but we'll do it. And I'm like, well, how much is it gonna cost? I don't know, but we'll do it. We'll find the money. And I'm like, are you serious? You know, I mean, like you're gonna go around, you're gonna tell people you're gonna go around and like raise all of these like, not only the Art Deco build, I mean, it's just a fantasy, a total fantasy, right? And um, it's never going to happen. And they're not saying that anymore, they don't say that, but they have started to raise, you know, a few blocks. Um, they actually raised the roads and the sidewalks in some areas and now you have these weird things where you have, in low-lying parts of Miami Beach, you have the road two feet higher and then you take steps down to the storefronts, to the restaurants and things like that. And they have these complicated pumps that, you know, cause of course the water drains into these areas. Uh, but they have these pumps that suck the water out, but then the pumps break sometimes, and it floods anyway. And you have this weird city like this now of different heights and elevations. And their vision is that eventually, uh, you know, those buildings will be rebuilt at a higher level, and they'll be equal again. But uh, you know, it's, it's they've only done like ten blocks, and people are already pissed off about it. And you know, it's it's clearly just not going to happen. You know, um, but it's, a city like Miami Beach needs. Needs to do something to show that they're doing something, or else people will start to leave, and that's mm-hmm. the one thing that they can't do is let people leave. Um, and so, these kinds of projects, some of them, you know, the, the drainage stuff. I'm not. I don't mean to make fun of it all, but the raising, the idea that they're simply
1: going to raise a city, um, is just, you know, uh, fantasy. I was following a um, a house build for a TV documentary last year and it w- the house was being built on the top of the South Island in an estuary and the compromise the architect builder reached with the council was that the house built as massive pavilions could be trucked away or even floated away as pontoons. Mm-hmm. And, and it, I was thinking about that reading some of the initiatives that you explore in terms of moving houses and, and reading that that's not a new thing either. Right. I mean,
2: one of the things you know that I, in my travels, one of the sort of unexpected revelations I had was in Lagos. Um, when I, uh, I went to Lagos and spent a couple of weeks in the water slums, uh, there's a big lagoon uh, in the city where, I don't know, uh, 300,000 people or something live, essentially as squatters in this lake, in the, in the lagoon, part of this, a bay, essentially. Um, and they live on houses on stilts, you know, in the way that I'm sure many of you have seen, if not the ones in Lagos and in other places. And when I was there talking to them about the issues of sea level rise and storm surge, they were like, well, I don't care, we, can, we, we need our house four feet higher, we can do that in an afternoon, you know, we just build it higher and, you know, they're already on the water, you know, they, they have their whole way of thinking about living on the water is very adaptive. And it became clear to me that after this trip to Lagos is that you know our the, the reason this is such a problem for us is that you know we humans you know built our cities and coastlines with this notion that the water is here and the land is here and that's a, they're kind of fixed right that we live because w- this is how we see it and how it was yesterday and how it will be tomorrow that that's how it will always be and one of the of course that's not true if you look at it in the broader or the broader sense of Earth's history, but no one thinks about it that way. But now that we're pushing the system as hard as we can, we're changing those boundaries, and we have all this stuff in fixed places that can't be easily changed. So this kind of stuff you're talking about. I mean, I think we're going to move towards this more adaptive way of living on coast, whether it's floating houses or stilts and elevations and all kinds of things, um, because people do love living on the water. I mean. Uh, that's uh, you know an architect friend of mine in in Miami who's a really brilliant guy he said if I could build a house that just hovered on the water that would that would be like the ideal like you know like that kind of infinity pool feeling thing you know that's what everybody wants and I'm like well they're all gonna get it really soon
1: here so (laughs) don't don't you say that's what's called a boat in the book yeah right (laughs) right I'm glad you brought up Nigeria Uh, and and you were talking about social justice before because up till now we've mainly talked about the impact on property owners and middle classes and upper classes but there's a massive impending social justice issue isn't there? Talk me through the scale of that and where that's going to hit.
2: Well I mean um, clearly you know uh, this is you know, sea level rise is going to impact um, people who ha- are wealthy and can afford to build defenses and can afford to move uh, are are going to be okay, right? I mean, uh, for a lot of people, the sort of their lives are set up in ways that if they have to live, you know, uh, uh, instead of having a house on the beach, they have a house in the mountains, you know, that's like the thing. It's like, oh, I've given up my house on the beach, but now I have this great house in the mountains, you know? But there's a lot of people who were that, who, for whom that is not an option. Um, uh, I saw that in, you know, in Lagos, where you have you know hundreds of thousands of people living on the water. Although they have this sort of adaptable thing happening, but even in places like Florida, where I, um, you know, as I said, centered a lot of the book, there, uh, there's this, you know, the people who live on the coast who are kind of aware of this in some ways. But then there's like huge numbers of people who live in working class neighborhoods who don't have any idea that they're at risk. They will live in ways that they can't easily move because of their jobs and things like that. Their entire investments are um, you know built you know the American dream is you own a house and that's where you put your value and for your money and things like that, and you pay off your house, and they have no idea that their houses are kind of at risk. So there's that subset of people. And then, you know, I went to the Marshall Islands, Uh, you know, there's people for whom this idea that, you know, oh, your house is going to lose part of its value, that's kind of a terrible joke. I mean, they're having existential
1: Hmm.
2: risks. I mean, their their country is going to go underwater. And um, where are they going to go? what does it mean for a nation like the Marshall Islands uh, when the physical place doesn't exist anymore? Um, and so there's gonna be this sort of massive displacement of people and, and all that kind of thing. But you know, I think that the line between the, the, the saved and the not saved in this is um, unfortunately pretty clear.
1: You know? And we, do, we have a number of countries just up here in the Pacific that are facing yeah. that same crisis and and it's easy to fall into a a sort of a convoluted discussion of growing atolls and things but it's not about just about the houses disappearing under the ocean is it? It's about the land no longer being able to sustain the life so so at what point do people cut their losses and leave?
2: That's the big question and that's what everybody has to figure out kind of for themselves and um Some people are, you know, uh, more adept at at that and have the advantages of being able to leave. For example, the Marshall Islands have the, as of right now, because of uh, an agreement with the US, they can come to the US, and I actually went to Arkansas where there's a big Marshall Islands uh, community there where they come and work in chicken factories, uh, mostly, and they have, they're building, there's like a mini Marshall Islands in in the middle of Arkansas, Uh, so they are, for right now, there's a you know they have a there's an exit path in a way, but that may not last very long. And for many other uh, island nations, there isn't an, uh, an exit path. And so, where do these you know you, they become they will become climate refugees, and where do they go? And what about the 30 million people in Bangladesh who live you know less than three feet uh, uh, above sea level? And where are they going to go? And you know it's it's I think the most disturbing part of this story is that is the displaced people um, and it it's one of those parts of the story that became kind of more and more disturbing the more as the time passed when I was writing it as the you know the whole Trump administration happened, and you know we've seen the how the politics of refugees and displaced people are driving so much in our world right now, and when you think about the consequences of this, climate change broadly is going to displace people, but even, but sea level rise specifically is going to really be, it's going to be um, massive. Mm. Um, And you'll feel it very strongly here. Of course, you have a lot of island nations around
1: that people will be looking for somewhere to go. Um, And I'd like to think we would welcome people with open arms, but your country is building a wall to keep out more than water.
2: Yeah, I mean. We're building walls everywhere we can. I mean, that's that's what got Trump elected. I mean, it was build the wall. That was the that was the main um, you know that was that's it. It's about you know we're going to keep ours and we're not going to share with anybody else. And um, you know we're going to hoard our piece of the pie kind of thing, and we're not going to share it, especially with anybody who's like of a, a different color or have sort of wandered in from a Sunken Island. I mean, that's like Donald Trump is not exactly
1: going to, you know. Mm. And and it feels like the whole shtick of the current Republican uh, regime oh, is yeah. is is to try and get us focusing on this rather than focusing on that. Right. And and one of the more poignant of the many poignant moments in the book is uh, you're talking about. Driving and listening to National Public Radio, and you hear a guy in New Orleans whose house has been taken out by Katrina. Then he was encouraged to rebuild, and he now knows the water's coming back, and he can't do anything, and he's got dependents and grandchildren, and he's pleading with the government for help. So, you know, what I want to know is, you know, what what happens when people like that start getting angry, because they should be.
2: That is the big question. Yes, I agree. I mean, that's why the politics of this are so volatile. uh, I, I don't know you know and I, I don't see a mechanism sort of in our political world right now to to begin to deal with this you know um, we don't even have a good mechanism to deal with sort of war refugees and things much less you know uh, climate refugees and and but especially in a context when the whole notion of climate change is still somehow so politicized that we don't even broadly you know uh, acknowledge that it's going on, especially in the US, right? We, it's like the thing that we can't talk about right now. So what do we do? <laughs> well, I mean, what we do is we try to, uh, you know, reduce emissions as much as we can to take the edge off of a lot of these changes, right? We try to elect politicians who are progressive in their thinking about this. You know, This is really a political issue, not an engineering, and I mean, there is engineering components of it and technological components and all that, but the real mechanism and levers here that are important are political. And so how do we build political space to start to talk about some of these things, to talk about you know, rezoning coastal areas so we're not building, putting more people at risk? How do we start changing building codes? How do we start building political space for refugees, thinking about that, I mean, all these, this is not like, um, this is not like an alien invasion where we like, oh my God, we have to come up with a gamma ray gun, you know, and we you know, I don't know if we can do that, and you know, it's not like that, This is this is all stuff that we can do. There's no, there's no Einstein required here, there's only like, Acknowledgement of the issue, the acknowledgement of the reality of it, thinking through it in some kind of way that begins to, um, instead of increase the risk, lessens these risks, political risks and economic risks. Um, but you know, by and large, we're not willing to do that yet.
1: I'm going to ask one more question and then go to questions from you guys. So there are a few microphones around here. If you do have a question a question. Please find a microphone and we'll come to you after this. So the, the question I wanted to finish on is around bioengineering and there's, there's a Geoengineering. Gr- geoengineering, thank you. Around geoengineering and there's a great quote in the book from Homo Deus uh, which I can't remember but basically it's about we're waiting for the scientists to save us. Yeah. Um, but actually the scientists are all yelling guys, you've got to start swimming. Right. Are we listening to the wrong scientists, or are we... Well,
2: so, you know, there's a lot of different... People ask me about kind of climate denialism a lot, and there's a lot of different varieties of, like, unwillingness to acknowledge this problem, and one of them is a technological denialism. Um, And it came... It was very crystal clear to me uh, when I was reporting this book. I went to the 100th anniversary of Miami Beach, it was a big beach party, like 5,000 people and bands and everything. It was very happy, and uh, and the mayor got up on the stage, and you know he was Mayor Levine is now running for governor, but he's a very kind of uh, defiant and sees himself. And he's he's a Democrat, progressive, you know, um, and you know he was standing up there and said, you know. It's the 100th anniversary of Miami Beach. Some people think that Miami's not going to be here in 100 years, you know. Uh, And he holds up his Apple Watch, and he says, if somebody would have told, you know, told you, you know, uh, you know, 10 years ago that we were gonna have, uh, or 15 years ago that we were gonna have a watch on our wrist that I could send a picture of my dog to my cousin, you know, you would have thought that that was crazy, you know, but technological, you know, they're gonna have a technological innovation that's going to save us. And that's broadly viewed with this, you know, like, you know, they're, like they're gonna build the Apple watch that will save Miami, right? And <laughs> it's like an app, you know? <laughs> and it's just like a fundamental miss categorization of the scale of the problem. And you brought up this thing about geoengineering. So geoengineering is this uh, idea of the sort of large-scale manipulation of the Earth's climate. There's lots of ways to do it, but the way that you're thinking of is this notion that we would put particles in the stratosphere to reflect away sunlight, building essentially artificial volcanoes. Um, It's a crazy idea. I don't endorse it, but I do think that there's a kind of inevitability about it, sadly. and th- that's, you know, seen as some f- to some people as a kind of technological fix for all of this. And it's not, it'll cause all kinds of more problems than it, than it solves, really. But, you know, we live in a world of, you know, dramatic technological innovations. And we can't grasp that there might be sort of a bigger system, like Mother Nature, out there that resists our, like, you know, you know that we can't really build an app for. And, um, I think, you know, climate change is going to humble us a little bit.
1: If you could put your hands together with me to thank, thank you very, very much, much for joining us today. Thank you.
0: You've been listening to a podcast from the 2018 Auckland Writers' Festival. You can find a range of other festival talks, interviews and discussions on iTunes and SoundCloud and on our website, writersfestival.co.nz.